0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now, on to today's episode. This is episode two in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled In the Upper Room, where we'll discuss Acts chapter one, verses twelve through twenty six. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today?
1: So at the end of Acts chapter 1, the uh, apostles are doing the very thing Jesus told them to do at the end of Luke's gospel. Wait until you have been clothed with power from on high. God willing, in the next podcast, we'll talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But the end of chapter one is a waiting pattern. They're waiting for the right time. They're waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's a very important image that we have, uh, that we should never move out apart from the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Also, I think that we're going to see that Pentecost, though unique in redemptive history, is repeated again and again in a smaller fashion. Definitely it's repeated in Acts chapter 4. And so the idea would be that we would also do the waiting of Acts chapter 1 sometimes, Mm -hmm. that we would have significant times of extended prayer in which we are waiting for God to pour out his spirit on us and empower us for ministry. So we'll see that. Also, we have in Acts chapter one, the replacement of Judas, the traitor. Hmm. And so there's a process that the church goes through in the upper room to replace Judas with Matthias.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read verses 12 through 26 as we begin our time looking at Acts chapter one today. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, akledamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, "'May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office.'" So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection." And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What does verse 12, as we begin, teach us about Christ's ascension to heaven, and how should we reconcile the location of the ascension with other accounts, such as the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Well, it's hard
1: to harmonize all of those things. I think it's a good work to do, and I think that is the work that New Testament scholars do, of putting Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together into one cohesive whole. And it's not easy, necessarily, always to do that, but there's it's logic, it's it's deduction, and they do that kind of reasoning, and I appreciate their work. Um what we can do within this one text is say that Jesus ascended uh, to heaven very, very close to the city of Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is very close. It says here a Sabbath day walk hmm. uh, from the city, which my, fo- my footnotes here says about three-quarters of a mile. So that would be the length of, of distance that uh, the – Uh, I guess the teachers of the law, the scribes or the the, um, rabbis said that Jews could walk and not be in violation of the commandment to not work on the Sabbath. So very, very close by to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus ascended from heaven.
0: Now, what's the significance of the Mount of Olives in the Bible and in the life of Christ? This isn't the only place we hear of this geographical location.
1: Well, we think Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. So that was the place that Jesus was, uh, that Jesus prayed where great drops of blood came from him. The word Gethsemane means olive press. So the idea is that the Mount of Olives uh, had... Uh, groves, olive groves, and there was a a private garden there that somehow maybe a wealthy person had access to or owned it and allowed Jesus and his disciples to retire there at the end of every day. And that's where Jesus went for um, the... Uh, for his time of prayer in Gethsemane. Also, we have the so-called Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which is basically eschatology, intensive eschatology in Matthew 24 about the end of the world. Mm. And Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple area. They could see the temple uh, from the Mount of Olives. They could see the whole city. And Jesus had already said, not one stone here will be left on another. And Peter, John, James, and Andrew come and ask him about the circumstances. Uh, of that uh, of his coming and of the destruction of the temple so that also on the Mount of Olives
0: why is Jerusalem so important in this phase of the church's life
1: well Jerusalem is is the center of God's uh, plan for the nations it starts there and we know in acts 1 8 it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on on you and you'll be my witnesses and then it says first in Jerusalem then Judea Samaria to the ends of the earth so it's set it it, it It centers right there in Jerusalem. Also, Jesus um, lamented that no prophet could ever be killed outside of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was a city of blood, a city Mm -hmm. of persecution, a city of unbelief to some degree among the Jewish nation. Also, it's the city of David with a great deal of history. And we believe that Zechariah implies that Jesus will return to earth to the same place uh, from which he had come, not just that he will return in the same manner, but even to the same place, that he will descend and his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives at the time of the second coming. And so Jerusalem will continue to be the center and the focus. Now, we know obviously as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, there are going to be other centers of God's activity. And Mm. as a matter of fact, if you know anything about church history, you realize that the glowing center of God's hot activity uh, in evangelism and missions has moved from place to place to place. So we would say, for example, there would have been maybe no place more exciting to be uh, than Wittenberg when Luther was there during the Reformation. He, he was teaching the pure, powerful gospel. It was, that's where justification by faith alone was being taught most plainly and powerfully and clearly. Uh, within half a generation after that, you would go to Geneva in Switzerland where Calvin was doing his ministry. And that would have been the place to be. John Knox said that, uh, that Calvin's Geneva was the most perfect school of Christ there has been on earth since the time of the apostles. Wow. Well, nowadays, Geneva is just a very secular city. Um, there's definitely Christians in Geneva, but it's not an, a powerful center of the gospel. Uh, you could imagine that some places in England during the time of the, of the Puritans would have been the best place to be uh, in the 17th century, for example. Uh, eventually, it would be in uh, Massachusetts, in the Boston area where George Whitfield preached and where Jonathan Edwards preached during the First Great Awakening. There mm-hmm. would have been no more exciting place to be on planet Earth for the gospel than in that area in Boston. Uh, but not anymore. I mean, that's my hometown. And, you know, there are definitely Christians there, but I would not say it's the most exciting place to be in terms of the activity of God. So those centers have moved from place to place. But God never stopped thinking about Jerusalem. And we believe that there are some unfulfilled prophecies that center on the city of Jerusalem in the future.
0: What I love about that is that place matters, right? That God isn't uh, indifferent to where Jesus physically entered the world and where he'll come back. But that's all a part of God's perfect providence and his plan.
1: For sure. And then we get uh, Jesus' lamentation and weeping over Jerusalem. He weeps over it, similar to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah wept over desolate uh, Jerusalem during the time of the exile of Babylon. Mm. There's like no one left. I mean, maybe it was there was literally no one left in the Mm. city. And uh, in Lamentations, he says, how desolate lies the city, once so full of people. Mm. Um, So that's Jeremiah. Uh, And then Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing what was coming. He said, "Uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house has left you desolate. That's empty. because." you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a weeping. And then he predicted that the Gentiles would come and destroy it. The very thing that uh, they did,
0: the Romans did. Now, It also says in verse 13, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Was the upper room that they were staying in that's mentioned here in this verse the same room in which they celebrated the Passover or the Last Supper with Jesus?
1: Seems that way. Um, You have that in Mark's gospel where the disciples came to him and said, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Mark 14 and he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the city and, you'll, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Uh, say to the owner of the house he enters, where is my guest room where I may spend the, uh, the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, make preparations there. Hmm. So how many upper rooms are there? You know, I think there are tons of them in Jerusalem, but in terms of why would they move? They're just running it. They're, they're gonna be there for a while. Yeah. And so I uh, understand pilgrims would come from all over the, the Roman world, and we'll see that in chapter 2. Um, people coming from very distant places for the, the, the Feast of Passover and then 40 days later the Feast of Pentecost. So They're going to need a place to stay for mm-hmm. a while. So I don't know why they would have moved all their stuff out of one upper room into another upper room. So I guess I'm going to give you a provisional yes. It was the same <laughs> upper room where they had the Last Supper.
0: Why does Luke list the names of the apostles at this point?
1: Well, it's very important that we know who they are, um, and they're the same ones that he had chosen. He went up on a mountain t- mountainside and prayed and came down and designated 12 of them, calling them apostles, that they should be with him and that he should send them out to preach and drive out demons and do various other patterns of ministry. There were 12 of them, 12 apostles, and so he lists the name saying that these 11 now left, and we'll get to Judas in a moment, but the 11 that are left are the same ones that had been with him and that were prepared for that ministry. And so it was very important. They would end up being the human foundation on which the entire church was built, mm. as it says in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I think that's in their verbal testimony, their eyewitness testimony to that life, the physical facts of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, everything comes from that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of it comes from the foundation of of the history, the biography of Jesus that these eyewitnesses gave. Beyond that, also, they have a leadership role. They have an office of leadership, and they're going to fill Judas's empty office. But there's a position of leadership in which they make important decisions for the church. So that's why they list these names.
0: How about verse 14? What insights do we glean from that verse into the life of the apostles in the early church? What they spent their time doing and the nature of their fellowship.
1: Yeah, they join together constantly in prayer. And so they're praying and they're seeking God. And this is the, the central lesson really in the Christian life. It's a lesson that we learn our entire Christian lives is the importance and the power of prayer. And I'm still learning it, Wes. I, I've, been, I've been at it my, my whole Christian life and I don't know that I'll ever really understand it. Uh, there are two aspects to prayer. One of them it makes perfect sense to me and the other one is a mystery. All right, the first one, prayer changes me, or we could say prayer changes us. That makes perfect sense, Mm -hmm. all right? Prayer changes things, that's more mysterious. Mm. Changes from what? They haven't happened yet. They're not changed from the sovereign plan of God, not at all, Mm. because God isn't going to change that plan. There comes the mystery of prayer then. What then does prayer really achieve To be honest, it's just going to do what God had already determined should be done. But we should not dismiss the importance of prayer because it seems that God, being a God of means, has ordained Hmm. that the prayers of of his people are essential to getting that plan done. And so for us to go to God and ask him to do things seems to be absolutely essential to everything that comes in the Christian life. Beyond that, we have the vital lesson that, that begins the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3. Uh, where it says, blessed are the, are the spiritual beggars. The poor in spirit, Potokos is a beggar. There's nothing, no, nothing to offer. Blessed are the spiritual beggars for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get everything by being a beggar. Mm. So the idea here is that the 11 are there in the upper room with uh, the whole church, 120 people, we'll get to that in a minute, but the whole group, and they are joining together constantly in prayer. They are, their hearts and minds are one. They already have the words of the Great Commission ringing in their minds. That's happened now. The Great Commission has occurred. Jesus has given them those words. He's given them the version in Acts where they're going to be witnesses and they're going to wait for the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. So they're joining together and praying, I would think, that the Holy Spirit would come, Mm -hmm. that
0: the power of the Spirit would come
1: so that they can be equipped for the ministry.
0: Verse 14 also tells us that Jesus' mother and brothers were in the upper room as well. What's the significance of this for our study in the book of Acts? It's vital. It's
1: vital. First of all, I remember when I was uh, – we were preaching through the book of James and we're talking about James. James – apparently the James who wrote the book of, of James in the New Testament book was Jesus' brother, uh, not, not the, uh, the James mentioned here among the 11. It's a different James. Um, so uh, that James, we'll find out later in the book of Acts, was the first uh, of the apostles to be martyred. Mm. Um, but no, James, uh, Jesus' brother, was a was a convert, a late convert, and uh, we know that because it says in in uh, John chapter seven that even Jesus's brothers didn't believe in him,
0: because
1: mm. you remember in that chapter. They're exhorting Jesus to go up to the feast because there's gonna be a ton of people there and they give Jesus some PR advice saying (laughs) no one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Why aren't you going up to the feast? Everybody's gonna be there. Why would you stay like a recluse, et cetera? Parentheses, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Mm. But here they do. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 why because James is specifically mentioned as someone Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. Mm. He went and got him. He went and got his brother and uh, appeared to him. And so here we have Mary who was always a believer. I really don't fault Mary um, for that moment of weakness in Mark chapter three where they go to take charge of Jesus because he's out of his mind. Mm. I think that's his brothers again. Um, Mary doesn't think her son is out of his mind, but she's there and Jesus is somewhat disparaging at that moment saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. You want to be my mother? You want to be my brothers? Then do God's will. Mm. Believe in me. Mm. Don't come take charge of me. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's Mark 3. So here, everything's changed. They are genuine believers, wow. and they're waiting for the spirit of God to come. So it's just a sweet story, James in particular. And he becomes the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He mm. becomes the, the central leader there. James is the is the main guy. So it's fascinating.
0: What do we learn about Peter as we turn now in verse 15 to this move toward replacing Judas? Right. Uh, what do we learn about Peter after Christ's ascension from verse 15? Yeah, Peter is the leader
1: at this point, and, and
0: he will continue to be a pillar. In Galatians, uh,
1: Paul calls him a pillar of the church in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so Peter, uh, James, the brother of Jesus in those, in those later times, at that point after the apostle James was executed and John were pillars. Um, and so Peter's the leader, and, and he's, he's always been that way. He's the one that says what everyone's thinking. Hmm. Um, he's, he's, he is the leader. He's got, he's got natural leadership tendencies, and then Jesus has polished him and shaped him and prepared him for his role. Also, keep in mind, it was just a very, very short time before this, just a couple of weeks at best – um that uh well i guess he spent 40 days with them so just a short amount of time a month and a half before that he had completely denied even knowing jesus but then in John 21, Jesus had restored him, asked him three times, do you love me? And he said, feed my sheep. He said, you're still a shepherd. You're still an under shepherd. So he establishes him in that role. So we see really then a picture of a man that I think many churches might've dis- disqualified from ministry, so to speak. You mm-hmm. hear that phrase a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it's weighty to be holy and there are things that disqualify us. But the idea that, that uh, we forget how Peter had to be restored mm-hmm. and Jesus did restore him, and I mean quickly was not a long, convalescent time where he had to prove himself over five years or something like that. He was right back in it, mm. and the Lord restored him, and so we see him as a leader here.
0: In the book of Acts, we get, uh, at least at the outset, some different numbers related to how many uh, are a part of the church in Jerusalem. You mentioned 120. Uh, 3,000 mm. are added in uh, chapter 2, verse 41, and the number of men grows to 5,000 in chapter 4, Verse four, should that's we find Luke's the <laughs> tracking of this significant? And yeah. Why is that the end? Why does Luke track the numbers only at the beginning? Yeah. I mean, th-
1: I think the numbers are important, but not all important. And so mm. I would say the fact that there is this counting 120, 20, 3000, 5000 shows that numbers are important, but the fact that we don't get any more after that, that's it. Um, you know, uh, shows us that we shouldn't be living for numbers. And also, I think we need to realize the Holy Spirit can give numbers that we can't give, all right? He knows what actually is happening in people's hearts. Um, and so to, fundamentally, the real numbers that matter will be on Judgment Day, the sheep and the goats. Mm. Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? Mm. So, you know, I think I think if, if you're in a, in a populate, populated area and um, you're healthy and you're not seeing any converts, no baptism, something's wrong. Mm. Something's wrong there. All right, um, you know, I think there are certain locales you could live in. It wouldn't be surprising you don't see any converts because everybody there is a believer. Maybe you're in a, in a very remote area, something like that. I don't know. But if you're
0: in a major city, so numbers matter, but they're not all important. That's good. Verse 16 really begins Paul, uh, sorry Peter's argumentation uh, about the reasoning behind the need for Judas to be replaced. Um, what is that method? And do you think the early church thought the number 12 was significant concerning the need for replacing Judas here?
1: You know, I think clearly they did think the number 12 was important, and I think it is important. I don't think it's an accident. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles. And you get the same in the book of Revelation with uh, the foundations and the gates of the New Jerusalem. 12 foundation stones, 12 gates. You know, you got the 12 tribes of Israel. you got the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, whose name is written there? Is Paul included? Mm. You know, what do we do with Paul and (laughs) Matthias? You know, that's 13. So uh, it's very interesting. But Mm -hmm. uh, John doesn't tell us whose names are among the 12.
0: Mm.
1: Actually, some commentators on Acts 1 have have speculated that the church acted precipitously and should not have replaced Judas until God replaced him with Paul. Interesting. Um, But that's farther than I want to go. I don't have a feeling that what they did in Acts 1 is spoken of negatively or disparagingly, although the casting of lots seems a bit odd. And, you know, I think we can get to that in a moment. But the fact is it seemed that they felt somebody had to be replaced. And they even quote Scripture, may another take his place of leadership or may another take his
0: his place of office. So I think definitely
1: uh, God intended that there be 12.
0: So in the midst of Peter's argumentation here, part of what he does is recount what happened to Judas. How do we reconcile this account of what happened to Judas with the account in Matthew 27.
1: Well, first of all, we always are going to try to harmonize. And if we can't find a good harmony, we'll just give it to God. But we don't give up on inerrancy. We're not doing what some liberal scholars do with genealogies, with mm. other things where they find discrepancies and throw the entire Bible out thereby. So my feeling is I think it's exciting when there are apparent discrepancies. We should not imagine that we're smarter than the Holy Spirit. And it's like, wow, I missed that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like it's an editing work that should have been done yeah, better. Like the Holy Spirit's a bad yeah, copy editor, it's yeah, not should have, the case. <laughs> no, not at all. So you try to figure it out. Like I just just yesterday I was preaching on the baptism of Jesus, and mm-hmm. we have in Mark's account. The statement is made, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. But in Matthew, it says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So I think both could have happened one after the other. First, maybe the word to Jesus, second, the word to the world. Mm. Or it could have been a little more spiritual and mysterious that, that one word goes out and Jesus hears it one way and the onlookers hear it a different way, just like will happen in Acts chapter 2, where everyone mm. heard the same message in their own language. So that's possible too. So when it comes to the death of Judas, I think what we'd have to say is every every um, thing asserted about his death is true. So you harmonize. So what we get is that Jesus, Judas hanged himself um, and... Then it says here that his, he fell headlong, his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Hmm. So if all you had was Acts, you would think he, he threw himself off a cliff. If all you had was Matthew, you would think that he hanged himself and that was it. So I guess I would put them together and say, imagine that he hanged himself by uh, a tree that was near a cliff, let's say. Uh, So he's hanging over some high distance or over some, some hill area. And then the branch breaks... And his his dying or dead body falls headlong, and then the intestines spill out. Mm. The reason the intestines spilling out are mentioned is that when stuff like that happens to a body, it's a picture of the curse of God. Mm. So you get this with Jezebel, where dogs ate mm-hmm. her her body and licked her blood, kind of thing. So it's like yeah, when when the body's treated like refuse, it's a picture of judgment from God.
0: Why was it important for the apostle to have been there the whole time Jesus went in and out among them? And what was the major function of an apostle? So we'll just say it in one word, eyewitnesses, all right? Uh, we get 1 John 1,
1: that which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, what, what we have handled, you know, what we've interacted with, we were eyewitnesses fundamental eyewitnesses everything else flows from that we actually saw it and heard it and so that's why I think in acts one we have this requirement that the guy had to be there and also when Jesus in in Mark's gospel goes up and spends the time in uh, the night in prayer and comes down and and chooses 12 designating them to be apostles that they might be with him mm. and that he might send them out to preach what are they preaching they're preaching him so they had to be there and say we were eyewitnesses of his majesty as Peter will declare. So he had to have been there the whole time.
0: Verses 23 through 6 recount the process the church goes through in uh, working to replace Judas. What do we learn from how the church went about its work in choosing Judas's replacement? Okay,
1: so um, they, have, they first lay out the criteria. Then they bring forward two men who meet the criteria. And then they have to discern between the two which mm. uh, one they went through. And they pray. They ask God for leadership. They ask Him for guidance. They say, Lord, you know everyone's heart. You know the internal hearts of these two men. You know who would be best for this apostolic role. So show us which of these two you have chosen for this apostolic ministry. Um, and then they say, which Judas left to go where he belongs. So we can talk about that in a minute. Mm. But um, they, they prayed. And sought God's wisdom and guidance, but then they cast lots. Now, here's the thing. I do believe that this pattern was more frequent in the Old Testament than we might think. Um, the lot settles matters and brings adversaries into uh, you know, who are disputing into harmony. Uh, you got the Urim and Thummim, which seem to be white and black stones. And mm. so you could get answers to yes, no questions, and they could seek guidance that way. Um You don't see it much done the rest of the New Testament. We don't see Paul referring to it. Um, it, It's just not, even though the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's not generally uh, what we do here among the elders, you know, roll dice. You know, if 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 it's higher than eight, We'll do this. If it's lower, then we'll do that. If it's eight itself, exactly, we'll roll again. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's just not a pattern yeah. that we follow. So that's why, as I mentioned earlier, some people think this is rather suspect. Hmm. Um, I think once the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit just tells them what to do. And you get that with uh, in Acts 13, where he says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. You get the gifts of the Spirit, prophets. Word of knowledge people, people that come in and give you thus says the Lord. God is telling us to do such and such. Mm. So we don't need the casting of lots again.
0: Andy, you mentioned uh, where it talks about Judas in the ESV. It says turning aside to go to his own place. What more should be said about the outcome for Judas here? Well,
1: I've said before that Judas is the only human being that we know by name is in hell mm. right now. hes uh, We don't know anyone else. Now, we can certainly make some pretty clear presumptions of some of these wicked kings and the old Ahab, some of these other bad, bad people. But the only, only scriptural statement we have, and what do we have? Well, a number of things. Jesus said uh, in John 17, um, he says, Father, of all that you have given me, I've lost none, except mm. the son of perdition, the son of lostness, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Mm. So, when Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition or the son of lostness, son of means the one who perfectly characterizes that trait. Like Barnabas means son of encouragement, he is the essence. Of encouragement. So Judas is the essence of perdition or the essence of lostness. Mm. And Jesus says, except, meaning he has been lost. Mm -hmm. Now he was never part of him. He said earlier in John 6 Have I not chosen you the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Hmm. So he never was a follower of Jesus. Um, So I believe that his place. That he went to was hell. Mm. He went to so then he becomes the quintessential reprobate, along with obviously Esau. And you could say, well, don't we know that Esau is in hell? Well, Esau certainly represents um, the reprobate, and so he. You could say, well, the scriptural evidence that Esau is in hell. Mm. So maybe I, I could expand it that much. I do think that that's helpful for us re- refraining from judging dead people. Hmm. It's just not our role, that's something given to Jesus. Yeah. So that's why when I when I do a funeral, and if I think the person w- was lost, I don't say anything about where they are right now. Hmm. I just reserve, it doesn't mean I don't believe in hell. Right. It doesn't believe I don't suspect that they're probably in hell. Mm. But my suspicion is not helpful right now, and it isn't my place to pronounce it. Mm -hmm. I had to do, early in my ministry, a double funeral. It was a murder-suicide in which a grown son in his 20s killed his own mother over drug money and then committed suicide, Mm. and I had to do the funeral for both of them. And you had to address a very clear lostness that ended right up to death. But I just felt that it was not my job to pronounce someone to be in hell, I just mm-hmm. now. I don't think the opposite is true. I think we can say that people are in heaven. You know, somebody's li- lived a conspicuous Christian life, and and died, you know, to the glory of God, and and we can say that they're in heaven. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any harm in doing that. At any rate, so Judas went to go where he belongs to his place.
0: It's good to be reminded too that that warning or that. Um... Praise that comes is really meant for those who are left and living, right? That we would be warned of the outcome for those who would turn away and reject Jesus, sure. but also uh, given the hope that for those who trust in Christ, there is an eternal destination that is yeah. glorious. Yeah, Judas
1: was a thoroughly bad person. I mm. mean, it's hard to imagine how bad he was. Like betraying Jesus with a kiss. I mm. mean, the, the, the cynicism mm. of that, the arrogance of it, he was just a very, very bad man. Mm. But the thing is, he looked very good on the outside. He was a whitewashed tomb because mm. all of the others just thought he was apostle with, with the rest of them. You know, they thought even when he was going out to betray Jesus, he was just buying supplies for the feast. But he was motivated by gain, motivated by money, um, sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's just a
0: bad person. Mm. Now, we talked about their casting lots at the end of this in order to determine who would take Judas's place. But I want to circle back for our last question to to talk about uh, their prayer. What does their prayer teach about God's sovereignty, about humanity, and about how we ought to make decisions? And then maybe any final thoughts you have for us on this chapter.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great prayer. You know, Lord, you know everyone's heart. You know, and it's good for us to, to know that. I am he who searches hearts and minds, and mm. I will give to each person according to what he has done. That's in Revelation chapter 3. And so just knowing that, reminding yourself of right doctrine, and then also just the, the principle of, of filling a role in a, in a local church or in a, in a Christian um, um, mission or, or ministry agency. Lord, you know everyone's heart. You know the one that, that you want to take this role. We're, mm. we're asking you to guide us. I think it's a great prayer. Casting lots, I would not commend that as a pattern. <laughs> I would just pray until you have an answer, yeah. you know. But uh, at any rate, I think it's a, it's a wonderful prayer. So it's a
0: great chapter. Good. Any final thoughts for us on the chapter as a whole?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, go back to the key, uh, which we didn't even talk about today, <laughs> Acts one well, 8 yeah. We mentioned it. You'll sure. receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. God willing, in the next uh, podcast, we'll talk about that, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit.
0: Well, this has been Episode 2 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for Episode 3 entitled, Pentecost. The gift of the Holy Spirit, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread
1: the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians